If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Gavin Levy. He's worked primarily in skilled nursing settings, and he is more and more passionate about what he does every day. Uh, He's still in the early stages of his SLP journey, but he's a strong sense of determination and believes many things are possible through hard work, continued growth of knowledge, and an inquisitive nature. And I love this conversation with Gavin and actually how it all came to be was uh, he just stopped me at the ASHA convention and we got talking and he said, I would love if you could talk about this on the podcast. And we kept going back and forth a little bit. And I said, well, but I love your ideas. I said, why don't you come on the podcast and talk about it? And he was like, just could not believe that. And he was shocked. And I said, but no, that's what this podcast is all about. Like, I love having SLPs that are curious about other things and want to hear other sides of stories. And so this, this interview or this podcast episode actually turned into sort of a reverse interview where he is sort of interviewing me. Uh, so Gavin is a skilled nursing facility SLP, which is what I was for many, many years. Um, and he just talks about his trials and tribulations of getting instrumentals, what the report tells him. Um, so it's an interesting conversation. I loved every minute of it because of my experience working as a skilled nursing SLP, but then also providing mobile fees to skilled nursing facilities. And now I'm back working in acute care. So I have that perspective of doing the modifieds and sending the reports to skilled nursing facilities as well. So um, it's definitely a full circle conversation and I hope you all learn a lot. And we actually turned this into a three-part series because (laughs) there were so many, uh, so many great points and and great topics that we wanted to to cover. And Gavin and I discovered that we could just talk all day about this topic. So I hope this is enlightening for you. I hope you see other perspectives, other sides of the story of some frustrations in our field and and maybe give some SLP colleagues some grace <laughs> as to why some some protocols are the way that they are. So again, hope you all enjoy this episode. And Gavin, I enjoyed talking with you so much on this. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. 
Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. And then I got this again from actually Dr. Inessa Humbert, where she talked about on one of her podcasts years ago, a swallow in the wild, right? Which is really what we see here when we're able to just watch somebody eat in the dining room or just walk by their room when they're just doing their natural swallowing. And again, I think that goes under time constraints because when I talk to my friends in acute care and I say, well, when you do your evaluation, do you have time to just watch them eat a little, drink a little? And typically they say, no, I don't have time in the eval because they've got so much to do. Now, maybe, maybe they could do at another time. But don't you think that's really critical to yes. see that portion outside of the instrumental. Well, and I'll even say, so I've got two thoughts here. Let me back up to your thought about the documentation. And, you know, you sent the notes to the fellow about wanting the chin tuck. Yesterday, we had a a, a resident come from a sniff. We had no information on this patient whatsoever. We had her name and date of birth, and that was it. So we were just left to our own devices to do the study. Four hours later, the facts came through with all of the paperwork Ah, for the patient. Yeah. So, and, and my heart just like bled out because the sniff SLP wrote the most beautiful notes. The, I mean, it was beautiful and we didn't have it for four hours until after the study. So, uh, uh. <laughs> so, so that's tough. But anyways, going back to your, um, I think it's tough because, you know, if you think of the MBS IMP, right, you think of, we're supposed to give one teaspoon trials. We're supposed to give you know, five out or not five ounces, five mLs of liquid. So we have these standardized amounts that we're supposed to try on the exam. On the flip side, I, as a treating SLP, I want to see, like you said, what they do themselves. So I'll hand the cup to them and say, take a normal size sip. And it's interesting for some patients, it is just the tiniest sip that's maybe two mLs. For some patients, they're chugging six ounces, you know? Um, so I think, as the, as the person doing the study, I think it's, it's important for us to follow those standardized, the standardized protocol. But then I think if we do have the time to be able to give a few trials at, let allow the patient to lead that, you know, tell them, Hey, take a big, as big of a bite as you normal, normally do. Just take a normal size bite for you. Take a normal size sip through the straw. If that's what you use, whatever your normal is, because that's what, you know, we, we can see this picture perfect study or, you know, study with the standardized measures that we use. But then, like you said, if they're used to to drinking four or five ounces at a time and all holy hell breaks loose when they do that, what good is just, you know, the regulated, you know, five milliliters? So I might be totally wrong in that, but that's, that's my perspective. And I think, yeah. And I think sometimes that's, that's the flip side of the challenge we might see here, here, here in this setting where we might see somebody comes on a regular diet, thin liquids, And we see, now we know overt signs and symptoms are not always an indication, but we'll see 
coughing on every bite or looks like choking. You know, same with the liquids. We're seeing enormous overt signs and symptoms. We're going, how did they get recommended this? Now, this is sometimes not with a swallow study. But I think it's also, like you're saying, if you're using a very small amount, 5 mil, 10 mil, and then we watch them and they're just guzzling because that's how they drink or they're shoving their mouth, you know, with a lot of food because that's how they like to eat. Then if you show us within functional limits on the swallow exam, but it was with 5 ml because that's where you got to, but maybe they're different with 50 and that's what they do. But I understand Again, time constraints and reality, we may not see that, but I'm just saying that may be something that's a challenge, right? From their swallowing the wild compared to what they did under a very measured. And then just going back to one last point on that, if you will. So just go back and you put this to rest for me, because sometimes, as I said, I look at a patient with it doing a fees and I've got to, you know, sitting on 150 or something like that. And I'd say at least a third of them it looks uncomfortable. It just looks it. Now, maybe it isn't. And that's where I was going to, again, ask you, does that possibly impact or give me your take on that? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I love fees. I love endoscopy. I think it's very much an art as it is a science. Right. And I, I had this conversation yesterday with somebody because I've seen endoscopists that just they move this the scope in beautifully, the patient barely even flinches, a study goes off without a hitch. I've seen other people that it just looks like they are ramming that scope into every piece of cartilage in the nose, tearing it up, patients bleeding. I mean, I've just seen some terrible things. And it's like, no wonder the patient's in agony. Like you're really truly hurting them. And I think one one thing that I really don't like, I will be People don't be mad at me for saying this, but I've been involved in a lot of fees training courses. And what I really don't like is some SLPs that have no experience or might even be grad students or students that have no experience with fees and they're asked to pass a scope on their friend and they put the scope in their friend's nose and they, and it's the first time they're ever passing a scope and their friend is in so much pain. And then you hear the narrative that is fees is so painful. I would never do this to my mm. patients. I would never do this. And it's like the telephone game. It just keeps going and going and going. And I don't know, I don't know how to get people trained in, and obviously you have to start somewhere. I don't know if it's just practicing on a dummy a hundred times until you learn to manipulate and navigate the scope. Yeah. I mean, I've done so many fees. I don't think there's a nose. I, you know, without a whole blockage, I wouldn't be able to get through rather not not causing them a lot of pain i should say you know there is there is slight discomfort there's a lot of you know things that happen but it's really an art form to be honest like it really truly is and there's people that can pass the scope beautifully and there's other people that are just ramming it in there and just destroying people's nasal passages and that really stinks so <laughs> so do you think like for example cuz sometimes just as an example i might see somebody holding the liquid and go well I don't see them do that normally. And now they're doing the fees and you see them, but they look tense. There's anxiety. They have other conditions like dementia, maybe, right? Yeah, Absolutely. That's going to affect the test. Yeah. It'd be remiss to think that it's not. So, you know, again, I think, you know, whether you document that or just have a conversation with the SLP, like, you know, because sometimes I've seen patients just 
even when they have the scope in their nose, they think they have to be in a different position and they'll like throw their head back. So it's either easier for the scope to be in place. And of course, that's not how they normally eat or drink, you know, so the endoscopist really has to coach the patient, you know, hey, try to be in your most normal position. It's tough also with doing modifieds about positioning too, because we had a woman yesterday that her positioning, her natural positioning to an SLP, we would we would probably say that was horrible. But for her, that is her functional positioning. And that's how she's eaten and drinking for years and years and years and years. But in order for us to get a good picture on the x-ray, we had to prop her up in a position that she is not used to eating or drinking in, and she was not comfortable. So it's it's tough to to navigate those positioning things too. And the only way to get that image was on the x-ray to get her positioned in a way that she's not used to being. So of course that impacted the results. And and I think, you know, we just have to be honest and true with documenting these things that, hey, this did have an impact on it. And this is what we saw. And this is the physiology that we saw in the position that the patient was in, you know, whether we can generalize that to, to normal life, that's another story, but you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that. And it's fascinating. You mentioned positioning because we spend our days in these buildings trying to get up <laughs> Yeah. You know, we're saying, no, they really can't eat flat. It's not a good idea. Right, right. So now I'm going to move on to the 300-pound gorilla. Okay, I love it. And you're like, what is the gorilla? Bring them on. All right. It is the swallowing instrumental and the needle in the haystack. Yes. So let's, and you've talked about this many times, but let's assume that the modified, or we can say the fees, is administered in the acute care and the SLP writes a meticulous report. They connect the physiology. They connect it all together for us. And they're expecting it to be a passed along to the SLP in the skilled nursing facility. Unfortunately, it's not always the case. So how would we proceed to get the instrumental? Well, I, I came up with eight different ways. I'll just mention a few. So if you haven't received the instrumental, you could go to your admissions department, right? You could have your admissions department reach out to the admissions department or to their case manager who's at the acute care hospital. You could go to medical records in your building. One thing that I did was I had my, because this went on for a long, long time for us. I went to our corporate, the people that own the built own all our hospitals and I got to meet with them and I had the corporate managers go to see if they could solve this and make sure we got the instrumentals and I'll tell you afterwards what happened but for us it's been a very mixed bag right even today so let's just talk about the results and I would say the results can you know vary tremendously so you could receive the SLP notes but you don't receive the instrumental you could receive the radiology report, right, which gives you one line aspiration. Not very helpful. You receive nothing. You receive all the information that you already have. You receive a pathology report, but unfortunately, it's not the right pathology report. You receive the speech therapy report for the instrumentals two weeks later. Or you receive the speech therapy report, the instrumental report. So I would say, typically for me, I receive 10 to 20% of what I should receive. Yeah, yeah. What about, have you gone directly to the hospital SLP? 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's one of the first things I did. And, and I've heard that mentioned as a solution. And I think it's a great idea. There's a couple of things that I'll ask you. There's a couple of challenges there is that you could be dealing like we're dealing with multiple hospitals. And then outside of those multiple hospitals, we have people coming from like we have feeder hospitals. Yep. But there are other hospitals outside of those feeder hospitals, right? So in the end, you might be dealing with six or seven hospitals. Gotcha. But you also might be dealing with 25 SLPs and then those new people come in. And then I I don't know. I think there's a HIPAA question in there we could discuss when you just say to the SLP, can you do it? But yeah. Is there yeah. a HIPAA? I think there is. But absolutely, that's one possibility. It didn't it didn't become a solution for me. I'll, I'll tell you in a minute what was my best, um, but it only lasted about a year. So, so going, addressing your HIPAA question, sorry, I'm pointing at you. We're, we're on Zoom. Yeah, so, you're pointing. And I'm pointing because I have a point to make. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Bad Zoom habit I have. About HIPAA, what, what my understanding is, is that if it is for continuity of care of a common patient, it is not a HIPAA violation to send a report directly to somebody else that is working on that, working with that patient. And I, I, I've heard that many, many, many times. And I know, you know, I know a few facilities that I've worked at, that's their understanding as well, is that it's for continuity of care and, and both professionals are, are working on this patient together. So I think, and I've even seen that written on like a fit, a fax face sheet, you know, reason for sending this report. And it's like for continuity of care of a shared patient. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's a really silly thing when people say, oh, we can't fax you the report. That being said, I do know there's some facilities that have their own, their own policies regarding sending reports. So if it's an internal policy, that's obviously right, that's, right. that's a tough situation. If they, just cause I know sometimes they want medical records to sort of be the gatekeeper of the reports. I don't know the gatekeeper is the right word. I didn't mean that in a, negative connotation, but they just want it all, you know, kept in one department basically. So that's tough, but I think as much rapport as you can have, if some of these hospitals are willing to just send it to you, you know, like I said, even in that pre, you know, if you send over a form, you know, with, with, in advance, if you can write, Hey, if you could just fax this to me or, you know, email it to me, however you receive, you receive reports. I just think the most over communication possible is, is best. And I think it's what's interesting on this topic is uh, this morning, I mean, I've, I've asked this many times, but I talked to my physical therapy friends and my occupational therapy friends. And I said to my physical therapy friend this morning, I said, have you ever received an admit packet that doesn't have information on physical therapy? Have you ever had that? And he said, never. And he's been 25 years as a physical therapist. Never, unless, unless there's no information for anyone. Never. So I guess I'm... The bigger question I have here is physical therapy, most of the time, not all the time, 99% of the time, occupational therapy receives their paperwork. And 10 to 20% of the time, SLPs receive theirs. And I've heard this said many, many times, right? And different. Why is that? Why are we the ones? It's not our job. I mean, we, we make it our job, but it is not our job to chase these documents. And the other issue is we don't even know if people have had instrumentals, right? You yeah. don't get any information where, so I guess that's my bigger question is where is it falling apart? We're in 2023 and we're <laughs> still in the, and we're still in this same boat where, where 
that should be done by medical records or that should be done by admissions or that should be done by case managers who are doing the same thing for physical therapy and occupational therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just needs to be as much of a stink as possible from within. You know, I know the hospital that I'm at, we have to, on the discharge summary, we have to notify, there's a button that we click that notifies the discharge coordinator that there is speech and swallowing notes that need to go with this patient. So, you know, whatever system that needs to to happen to trigger that from happening, you know, I don't know if it's just being loud enough and squeaky enough and talking to the right people for, you know, the hospitals to implement that or, you know, telling the SLPs that this is a constant problem. You know, we're getting these patients from your hospitals with no information whatsoever. And, you know, I, I don't know that, Again, I don't know we can solve all that those problems in a day, but I think having these conversations as much as possible, as exhausting as they may be, and, and seemingly falling outside of what we need to be doing every day. But and I was also wondering, is it is there maybe? I know we don't want to always turn to Asha, but is there a role? Is there a bigger lobbying role? Yeah, because yeah. because it yeah. just doesn't seem to be to be happening for us in the same way. I will tell you, I don't have this now, but at one point we got very creative. And we had a doctor that 75% of the patients were with the same doctor. And we were able to reach out to, she had physician assistants in all the hospitals. So I could get my director of rehab to email the physician assistants in all those hospitals. Unfortunately, you know, that all changed. But while we had that, that was by far the best. We went, we were able to cut straight to the, the person that could, could do it you know, directly for us. And I've always found that anytime I can go direct to the source, because I know when we talk about advocacy, I'm going on a slight tangent, but when we talk about advocacy, I'm always like, well, advocate to who and advocate exactly what? Like I tried to get us off starch powders in this building. And for three years, I wasn't able to do it. I had gate, we'll say gatekeepers and we didn't have the budget and so forth. But when I got to have a meeting with the owners of the facilities, I could go straight to the, you know, source and we were able to get rid of the starch powders and move to some, to a, you know, yeah. a gel based yeah. product instead. So I think that, that must play a role within there going to the, going to the source. You now, one thing I would say is that when I've had uh, mobile fees come into us, of course, that's a whole different ball game because you immediately get it. Here it is. And it's in your hand the same day. Now, unfortunately, we can't, we don't do that all the time. Most of my patients will be coming with a modified. Um, so we have to try and find it or, oh, I have to get the sort of families. Can you get it for me? Or I try and get it, you know, so forth. Um, but I do think it's still a major challenge and we need more advocacy and we need to find a way, you know, med SLP, you have your mentorship, right? I guess. Yep. Does it come up in your, in your group? Oh yeah. It comes up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So to be continued on that, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we will solve all these problems one day again. Now, I, I had a feeling we're not going to get through all these sections because I know I've got 10 sections on <laughs> number five, but we'll, we'll, we'll get as far as we can. And this one I called timing is everything. And I said, it's often said that, you know, the swallow instrumental is a snapshot in time. So let's say a patient has a stroke and they're sent to the acute care and they do their MBS and they're made NPO, okay? Now, two days later, the patient arrives at the skilled nurse two, three days ago. 
you are in a facility that two years ago did hardly any instrumentals. And you've been able to advocate for your patients so that you get one instrumental per patient from literally nothing. So that's a big win, right? Mm -hmm. But now, when do you do the instrumental? Remember the patient's NPO. Are you going to do it before therapy begins? Well, they had an instrumental just a couple of days ago, right? So most SRPs would agree with this choice. No therapy before an instrumental, right? But if you only allowed one, would you think twice? Would you do it at the first sign of progress? You see that your patient's beginning to make what appears to be functional gains. Would you do it when you as a therapist believe they've now reached a point where the instrumental is going to make a functional difference to the patient's life? Okay. Or would you say if no objective test arrives, but you know that the test was done three, four days ago, then first of all, of course, you have to wait for that test. And it's hard to justify doing another when you know that one was just done, even though you don't have that test at this point. Or are you going to say the question's irrelevant? And if I need to do five instrumentals, I'm going to do five instrumentals. That's what I want to say, but I also understand the real world. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I, I right. mean, I think... You know, obviously the beauty of working in the hospital is, you know, they, they can do them pretty, pretty repeatedly, pretty rapidly based on the patient's function, you know, improved function. I very much aware, or am aware and understand the logistics of working in the SNF. I, I did that for a very long time. I think with those patients specifically with this case that you're talking about, and I, and I can think of a few instances that that happened with me as well. Um, one of my first, first patients gosh, 15 years ago, I remember. Um, and we had to just go to bat and and really advocate to the administrator that, that, hey, I understand that this is sort of the protocol, but this patient has made a lot of improvement. And this is not an accurate depiction of what she looks like now or he or she looks like now. They are improving drastically. Um, they deserve to have a follow-up test. You know, same thing. It's like, you know, you could compare it to every other, you know, MRI, CT, X-ray, you know, the patient's now weight-bearing, we need to get another X-ray, you know, things are, we, we need to get another X-ray so that they can be weight-bearing, things like that, you know, and, and I think a case-by-case basis, we have to advocate. I also, going back to your question, you know, do you start therapy? Again, that would really depend, I think, on the patient and the family. It would be a conversation that I would have with them and just lay out all the facts, you know, and just say, hey, in a perfect world, this is what I would do. However, this is not a perfect world. And these are the constraints that I'm bound by. What what do you guys think? Or do you have a preference either way? I think anytime I get in those really tough situations that I just can't, I can't figure out the answer on my own. I, I don't know that there is a better answer or the other. I go right to the family and the patient and see what they would want to do. And, and I think in those instances, you know, you can give, you can have the risk benefit conversation and say, you know, Hey, we can start these things. We don't know if, if the patient's continuing to aspirate, we just don't know. Um, we can try all these other things. We just truly don't know, but you know, we're hopeful that this is what's going on. So I think just being really open and honest with the family and having these risk benefit conversations and, and putting the ball back in their court. Absolutely. And I think like for us, like our policy, I mean, if I have somebody MPO, I'm not going to, I mean, I'll do trials if I want to do trials based on what I've seen before, but I'm not going to be doing 
a change to a diet without another objective test. Mm-hmm. I'm going to want to see that. And I think that's, I think that's best practice. But I do think it's interesting going back again, because we, we often say, well, we know that skilled nursing facilities, some do very, very few instrumentals. And that's a problem for me. But if you, but if you were able to take your building from doing one a month, if that's what they were doing, to where everybody now gets one, that's a huge win. But at the same time, if you have a patient on puree and moderately thick, so they want a honey thick liquid for whatever reason they are, and you're trying to get them back to a regular thin diet, and the building has said, sure, we'll let you have your fees. One. Now, when do you do that? Right. And like you said, you might be able to get this patient can have two. But they're not necessarily going to go from 10. Now they're at 150 a year. And now you're asking for 600 a year. Yeah. That's a whole that's a whole different ball game, Right. So I yeah. think that's an interesting conversation, because if we know that the swallow instrumental is just a snapshot in time. And you have somebody that came from a stroke, from a UTI, you know, from a subdural hemorrhage, and things can change and move very quickly. And so what you saw a week ago may not be that pertinent a week later or two weeks later. So I think that's that's just a really, I've always found that a really interesting topic because we kind of deal with that. Um, Even though like a fees is much cheaper, right? If somebody comes into your building, as far as I know, then if you go out and do a modified, which now comes out of their their budget, their whole medical budget. Yeah. So I think that's what I had on on there. And now I talked about, I called it the subjectiveness of objectivity. Subjectiveness of objectivity. So what I was really getting up here is how uniform are the recommendations based on the findings as SLPs. So let's say a swallow study, and we'll we'll go back to what we said before. Say this one says deep penetration to the vocal folds with thin liquids, right? But does not mention physiology. So SLPA recommends thin liquids. SLPB recommends mildly thick. SLPC recommends mildly thick liquids with a Fraser-free water protocol and oral hygiene. Now, SLPA believes that deep penetration with expelling the thin liquids through coughing and throat clearing is a functional swallow. So that's why they recommended the thin liquids. SLPB sees deep penetration on multiple attempts as a cause for concern. Maybe there's a volume piece. Maybe they're preempting aspiration, right? And SLPC falls somewhere in the middle. So what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's, it's tough. I, I, <laughs> I want to see more trials, Gavin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, I, I don't think we can make an accurate, we, we can't make accurate recommendations just based on that. However, just based on that, I would just do the thin. I, you know, my understanding of the literature is that penetration is very normal and functional and the patient should be on thin. That being said, we also don't know any other predictors of aspiration or predictors of pneumonia that this patient may have. We don't know their respiratory status. We don't know their cognitive status. We There's a lot of other things that could factor into, you know, it could be that the patient aspirated on 
98 of 99 other trials and this is the only one that they penetrated on. You know, we don't, we don't know all these other factors. So I think that's tough. But that being said, I do think this is important for the treating SLP to, but well, but like you said, there was no physiological impairments noted. That was just a, just a bolus flow. So that, that is cruddy. You know, it, it's cruddy to be able to try to make recommendations when you don't have the physiological impairments in front of you. Um, so when you do, you're able to make a, you know, much better educated guess. So I, I had a colleague I spoke to who's been doing fees for, I think, 25, 30 years and said at the beginning of the career had an incident where I'm not sure if they were sued, but had a big incident right at the big, very, very beginning of their career. And so that kind of led them to be maybe a little more conservative, which in my mind is understandable, right? You mentioned, and it's funny, I wrote it down. I said, should we know if there were mo- multiple trials, right? Obviously we want to know that, right? Should we assume um, if we're receiving one of these reports, that the SLP, as you said, has made clinical decisions based on the evidence, pneumonia, whatever else they saw, and that that doesn't need to be documented because obviously they've made that decision, right? If an SLP is using their own self-imposed parameters from which to base their outcome measures, are we then creating a subjectivity of objectivity? And so I guess that's why I go back to, you took the same situation we said, here's ABC, we might have had ABCDEFG, right? Yep. We might have had six SLPs come up with six from exactly the same. So that's why I say, is there a little bit of a subjectiveness of objectivity? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, you know, MBSIMP is, was created to, you know, eliminate as much subjectivity as possible, but I still see people that will, say something should be scored this way and somebody scores something a different way. So there absolutely is subjectivity in that. I think what's tough is, like you said, you have somebody that's really conservative in their recommendations. You have somebody that's really liberal in their recommendations who's right, you know, and, and, and I, the tough part I think is this confirmation bias of, you know, we can find research to support our beliefs. Right. So that's, you know, that's tough. I, I, well, well, and I think the subjectiveness of objectivity doesn't have to be negative because it could be if you combine it with competency, critical thinking, objective data. Yeah, we might not all come up with exactly the same, but I think that's OK, depending on you know, obviously where we go with it. You look at something like the MBSIMP, and I may be mistaken, but it's about getting a uniform language, getting you know, everyone on the same page, but the critical thinking part is still going to be based on the SLP. It's not going to give you all of that. So it doesn't mean because you do an SLP that that's better than somebody that does. Absolutely. And then, and then on this same topic, you go back to Bonnie Martin Harris, right? Did she, did she create the MBS AMP? Yep. Right. Is that right? Yep. Right. And she talked about, remember when she talks about where she does the, she meets the patient who's already had 10 swallow studies and she can't tell what the impairment is. And she does number 11 because all 10 are different. Yeah. So it's kind of going along that lines. And that kind of leads into, and I think we've really talked about this a little bit. I'll just be brief is the swallow study protocol. So, you know, with the MBA, 
MBISMP, there's an, uh, I suppose there's an agreed upon protocol. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. So, but still some will say there is a protocol of sorts with loose parameters. Some say, yep, I absolutely use a protocol and other SLPs maybe, you know, don't use a protocol. What would you say with fees? From what I've seen, there doesn't seem to be an exact protocol, but what would you say? I think, I think there absolutely needs to be one. Um, I will say that I tend to follow the MBSIMP protocol for a few okay. reasons. Um, I follow that protocol because there's research to support that protocol. Even though that's on modifieds, I do it for fees as well. For fees, what, what, why I like to do it is if when I'm going back to review the study, I know the specific, I know what order I gave things in, right? So I don't have to question, okay, what is this trial or what is this trial? I know, I know the order that I gave things in, or if I want to sneak in an extra one, I'll just make sure to, to document it or to say it. But when I'm going back to review it, it's important to know the order that I gave things in so that I'm accurately interpreting the study as well. I think, and I think another part that's important about a protocol too, is I see a lot of people I don't know if we want to go here or not, but I've seen a lot of people that will start the fees or the modified with a thicker consistency or with pudding right, and it right. immediately gunks up the study. It gunks up the camera or there's barium everywhere and you're just kick, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Um, <laughs> so I very much always start with ice chips or water. Um, just so we can see the swallow before we start gunking everything up with with barium and residue and, and all that thing. And it's really interesting to hear you say that because that's kind of where I was going to go next. Do we start with the least likely to aspirate on first? Well, then that might mean that they're going to start on the thick and liquid, right? If that's if they're already on that thick and liquid, that might be where somebody decides to start. And you're saying, no, I wouldn't go that way. So if somebody tests on nectar and the patient aspirates through um, thin liquids first and they see aspiration do they stop the study no right? absolutely because not. yeah right but but some people will stop the study and kind of will come back there in a second what about if you because sometimes i see where it's done by teaspoon mm-hmm. now i know that's part of the protocol right yeah but if that's all they do, and sometimes all I see is it mentions teaspoon, and I think, well, if the only thing utilized was a teaspoon, there may be a reason for it, but does that fit into a natural swallow and natural bolus control? And then, as I was saying, if first bolus, if you see aspiration on the first bolus, I know that some SLPs or some of my colleagues will say they'll do their first swallow or they don't count the first swallow or they kind of do a little sip before they even start so that, so that the person's not jarred. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're not jarred by their very first swallow. Yeah. So, so going back to what I was saying before and I'll let you respond. So some SLPs and radiologists say we stop at the first sign of aspiration and some SLPs will say, okay, this is where we begin. Correct. What are your thoughts? I agree with the latter. I agree. That's where we begin. Yeah, because if we're just seeing one instance of aspiration, there's there's functional, you know, healthy normals that aspirate, right? So we're we're totally giving, you know, being remiss to our patients if we're stopping right at one episode of aspiration. So 
Again, it's important to do the protocol. Obviously, if we're seeing a pattern of aspiration, obviously, if the patient's showing signs of distress, we want to stop the study. But if we can continue to challenge the system and figure out the pattern of why this patient is aspirating, what are the physiological impairments that's causing this patient to aspirate, it's tough to do it on just one trial. And I wouldn't want to, as someone writing the report, I wouldn't want to write an entire lengthy report just based on one swallow of one episode of aspiration. It's, you know, it's better to see a pattern and see how they do with different bolus consistencies. Within that, and I'm going slightly off tangent, and I'm not sure if it was was you on your show or a different show where somebody had a radiologist on, and they were talking about silent aspiration and aspiration because I think we see more reports than I used to see that will will document silent aspiration. But I think he was saying that some radiologists don't want you to put both because it impacts their billing or something. So they'll either put silent aspiration or they'll put aspiration. Sometimes I see patients come in with silent aspiration and I'm like, they're coughing on everything. Yeah. So yeah. they they have to have at least both. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and what did you think? And what did you think about the idea that if you're just using the spoon, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I th- we absolutely need to use more than just the spoon. I know the MBS IMP protocol is the spoon and then cup sip and then with a straw and then also sequential swallows as well. So you want to absolutely trial all the all of those because you'll see different mechanics with the swallow with each of those. Um, some patients do better with sequential swallows. Some patients do better with small cup sips. Some patients do better by teaspoon. It really, truly depends on their anatomy and yeah. physiology. And we're not giving the patient the full study if we're just stopping at a spoon. Like my son drinks from a straw, drinks with sequential swallows and has a very good, strong swallow that way. Wouldn't we give him by a teaspoon or just by a little cup sip? It's horrible. He coughs, he chokes, all the things. But his body, his mechanism is created for sequential sips through a straw. So yeah. So for him, if somebody were to ever say, you know, one cup sip, it would it would look horrible. Okay. Do you want me to stop there? All right. So we we are going to stop here just because of some time constraints. But um, any final thoughts on this episode, Gavin? Anything you want to leave the people with? Well, on this one, I'll I'll, I'll just say thank you to you because what it really does, I think for me and some of my colleagues in these settings, is it's giving us the other side of the coin. And I am in awe and I have a great deal of respect for people doing those instrumentals. And that's really why I wanted to do this so that I could hear here's what I'm finding, here's what I'm seeing. You give me the rebuttals and you tell me, no, this is the reasons or this is why, you're, you know, it is that way. And some of yeah. that's to do with just the reality of our of our world, right? And of our profession. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I love SLPs, right? We're, we're an interesting breed. And I think, you know, we all want the best studies for our patients. Absolutely. We all want them done this way. And the reality is sometimes it just can't be done that right. way. It's not anybody's right. fault. There's no finger pointing, there's no blame. It's just for some reason, the way the system is set up or the constraints we have within our facilities. And so Kevin, I love this conversation and I I love that I'm able to share some different perspectives that I've had from years ago, but also more recent perspectives too. So thank you for agreeing to do this. I know when I, when I told you to come on and talk about (laughs) it, you looked at me like I had 27 heads. So, but thank you for agreeing (laughs) to do it. Thank you so much. Okay.
And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.